Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And in this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about Emily Thornberry's star turn at PMQs. A Tory MP dropping the N-bomb. Plus a special guest. Hello, so we're joined uh, by a substitute for Helen Lewis, uh, our senior writer Anoush Kellyan. Hello. And fittingly, at this week's PMQs, we had a substitute for... Uh, Theresa May, our interim Prime Minister, uh, because she was uh, attending the visit of King Philippe of France. So we had uh, Spain, even. Don't worry, you have not missed the restoration <laughs> of the French monarchy, although give Emmanuel Macron time, I'm sure. <laughs> but So we had an interim Prime Minister being filled in for by an interim interim Prime Minister in Damien Green. But of course, the brilliant thing was that meant that we had Emily Thornberry time. I just love it when the Prime Minister's away because you get someone filling in for the Prime Minister and then you're like, who's it going to be on the Labour benches? I just remember it was always a bit, you never knew if it was going to be Harriet Harman or someone else. And um, this week we had Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and um, she did an amazing job, I thought. she um, All of her questions were about the consequences of... Uh, walking away from the Brexit negotiations with no deal and what that would mean for Britain, but also what it would mean for the Tory party, which is extremely divided on the subject. We have Theresa May saying no deal is better than a bad deal. Then you have the Chancellor saying that would that would have very, very bad consequences. Then you have the Brexit Secretary, David Davis, not really knowing what he thinks from day to day, which Emily Thornbury did a very good job of lampooning in the Commons. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the thing I always love about Emily Thornberry doing the House is, yeah, she used to be a, a barrister, so she's very, she's naturally mm. very good at it. She's she's witty. She's very good at kind of marshalling the House, and also, crucially, she can think on her feet and do follow-up questions. And one of the reasons why PMQs tends to be so uh, drab uh, at the moment is because Theresa May can't think on her feet. No. Jeremy Corbyn can't think on his feet. And so you tend to have, like, it's weirdly like ships passing in the night. Um, Yeah, it's almost as if they've both written their scripts beforehand. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been landing some blows recently uh, better than he used to. He is getting better at it, but he still sort of sticks to a script of questions, doesn't really react when the conversation takes a different turn. I think the thing is, I feel like what Jeremy, I think other than that first PMQs, when obviously Mm. he was sort of steamrolled, I think he has quite a good run against her. But he, he he can't seem to kind of he kind of wins one nil. In the, when she has a bad question, he kind of goes, "Okay, right, I'm now going to sort of move on to another topic." Whereas, I mean, obviously, it's also slightly easier because she did the very root one thing you do to the substitute PM of going, 
So your government seems to be divided. Do you have a view on this divide? Yeah, exactly. And obviously there's there's sort of nowhere there's nowhere to hide. I thought Damien Green did a better job of dealing with it than David Liddington did against her. I thought he he was quite good because he was sort of playing along with some of her jokes, particularly the joke that she made about Theresa May's speech earlier this week where she asked for sort of cooperation from the other parties in the House. She said, oh, you know, you're supposed to be building consensus, aren't you? Yeah. And he sort of played along and said, oh, I'm seeking consensus from the Honourable Lady, but I'm not really getting it. So he did quite well on that. He was quite good-humoured, considered the difficult, uh, the quite difficult position that he was in. Yeah, I think... I mean, yeah, we've not to reiterate something we've both said before, but I think it does bear, bear a beating. I think one of the reasons why he benefited is there was, I think, an immense sexism to people underestimating Emily Thornberry's ability to do well in that format last time. You know, as, as we've said, you know, she's you know, like, she's yeah, you know, she's a QC. She knows what she's about. She's a, you know, she's anyone who's seen her do like a conference speech or any kind of mm. spiel. And they do obviously send researchers to Labour Party conference to sort of see what the op opposition looks like. Should have known that Emily Thornberry would do exceptionally well in that arena. And instead, actually, I realised looking back, and we'll discuss this later on in the, in the, in the show, but this actually is, I think, a revealing of something which went wrong for them in the election campaign, which is L David Liddington should have been better prepared for Emily Thornberry to do well. And in some ways, the surprise since she did well, I don't think would have happened if uh, if they'd put Keir Starmer up. They'd have gone, oh, of course, he's a barrister. We need to mm. have our RA game, RA game on. And so it was partly that they'd prepared for her a bit better, but he also just was better at kind of laughing along with the jokes. Because yeah. it meant that, yeah, if you're laughing along, you aren't really the butt of the joke in the same way. Yeah, exactly. And I saw uh, David Davis desperately trying to laugh along with every joke as well, and that actually came off rather better than some of his more sour-faced colleagues on the front bench. Yeah. Um, but on the subject of Emily Thornberry, yeah, obviously her performance happily once again has narrowed her odds to be Labour leader, which was I was grateful for because I'd made a series of bad bets uh, <laughs> for both the, the Conservative and uh, Labour lead, next Conservative and next uh, Labour leader bet. But fortunately, my net profit on Emily Thornberry meant the book has balanced overall. That's I've great. been able to cash out <laughs> and escape the nightmare of them. Um, because some of the bets kind of made sense at the time, right? So Stephen Crabb, right? I remember when there was a time when yeah, Stephen that, that, Crabb was that, a thing. That yeah. bet, obviously, I, I don't, I didn't think I was going to get my money back for that. Um, well, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that your bets don't go well because you're quite good at predicting what's going to happen in politics. Or do you bet the other way so that at least one way you succeed? I mean, I, I think I probably get wrong. I think I probably predict things correctly more often than not, but it's finely balanced. And also, I think often at the time then when you're safe to make a prediction is not the right time to make money, as it were, right? You kind of sort of look at something and go, oh, well, your odds are quite good. So I always thought, I never thought Yvette Cooper could win mm -hmm. against Jeremy Corbyn. And I actually think it would have been difficult for Yvette Cooper to win against anyone among Labour Party members. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was a point when all of the other people not called Jeremy Corbyn had detonated, mostly self-detonated. You know, Dan Jarvis had written that, that very um, dull article. Uh, Chukar Amuna had irritated a lot of people in the Parliamentary Party. Uh, Clive Lewis had irritated a lot of people mm -hmm. in the Parliamentary Party. And her odds were still at 20 to 1. And you think, oh, well, it's not likely. But seeing as I only ever bet 5 or 10 quid, you kind of think, oh, I'll stick a fiver on you on 20 to 1. It might, it might come in. And then also for a while, there was this idea the parliament go, might go long and Tom Watson would 
become an interim leader, but for perhaps slightly longer definition of the word interim than uh, than people might have wanted. So you think, oh, I'll chuck some money on Tom okay. Watson while the odds are out. <laughs> um, and not, both of those would have been things which I'd have been very surprised about, but you kind of think it's worth it. And then with by-elections, the aim is to make sure that whatever happens, uh, because by-elections, the odds always do really stupid things. So in Stoke, for example, when when UKIP, when Paul Nuttall got in, mm. in uh, UKIP's price dropped, Labour's lengthened. And at that point, you're like, right, pile on Labour now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the start of that race, I piled on the Conservatives, because I think, well, as the election showed, although not in that constituency, I just think that the, the Conservatives had a much better, would have had a much better chance if they'd been second because people who UKIP aren't respectable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so so some of so they were all you know with the exception of my bet on Clive Lewis, where I to be frank don't quite know what I was thinking on that one because it, <laughs> it already started to sort of become estranged from the leader's office. Yeah. They were all sort of plausible bets. Yeah, I, I think you know Stephen Crabb was a plausible bet at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Amber Rudd, again, semi-plausible. Um, but, yeah, for all for various reasons have kind of come unstuck. Uh, you know, it's not like I was betting on George Osborne or anyone. Like, yeah, so I... I've, but anyway, I didn't... The point wasn't for me to thank Emily Thornbury for uh, saving <laughs> saving my, my betting book. But I think it's an interesting opportunity to take a kind of brief look at the state of the leadership races in the various parties. Obviously... There's always a leadership race going on in every party mm. uh, at varying degrees. Let's talk about the Lib Dems. Obviously, you uh, interviewed Vince Cable last week, and there have been some reverberations from that interview among Lib Dem members and mm, MPs. Yeah, well, I, th- I mean, the Lib Dems at the moment are the only ones who are officially having a leadership race, um, and it looks like Vince Cable is running unopposed, so he'll probably be their next leader. There was already a bit of um, unease about this because, you know, he, he's... He's a veteran of the party, which is a polite way of saying he's quite old. And also, he, he was in um, he was in coalition as well, so he's associated with their time in a Tory-led government. And one of his um, potential opponents would have been Jo Swinson, who was also in the coalition government, but she's younger and a more fresh face. And also, she's a woman, and the Lib Dems have never had a female leader. So I think there are a lot of activists, at least, and and MPs who would have quite liked to see her in the job. And now that um, Vince Cable. Uh, in his interview to me, while he made some ill-advised comments about mine camp, he also said that um, sort of gender isn't an issue anymore and race isn't an issue anymore when it comes to choosing a party leader. Therefore, age shouldn't be an issue, was his point. And that's, I think that's upset people more in his party than the other comments because, I mean, how can you, how can you really have a, a, a liberal leader who thinks that sort of feminism's solved or won or whatever and, yeah. and the same with race as well it does feel weirdly like it because it definitely was about this point in the last Lib Dem leadership thing where people signed up started to go oh I'm not sure about this Tim Farron guy yeah and it's nowhere near as acute but there definitely are some slight rumblings I think yeah there's definitely a parallel parallel as well because it's the same reasons it's like do you really actually have liberal views yeah <laughs> um and I think in an odd way, their problem is is that they I hadn't quite realised how bad the election result was for them in terms of the overall country. But one of their MPs pointed out, yeah, you know, they they finished in, in the of the fifty seven seats they held in twenty ten, they finished um third or worse in uh nineteen of them. And in eight of them they finished fourth. Oh wow. Like, it's just like it's like, wow, that's that's actually a surprisingly bad Yeah, that is bad. um Result and they kind of haven't really discussed uh, why, but I think 
the, the slight difficulty with Vince Cable is it kind of feels like he makes a lot of sense to appeal to um, urban liberals in big cities, mm. but... Twickenham. Yeah, but that thing is just like, yeah, it's like you've already won Twickenham. Yeah. You've already won um, Kingston. You've already won Carshalton. Obviously, I guess it'd be nice for them to, like, complete the set and get Sutton. But it doesn't feel like there are many places Yeah, left. I think they're almost suffering from what we thought was going to be Labour's problem, which is they're becoming an urban metropolitan party. They're losing in places that they always used to win, yeah. places like um, in Cornwall, places that aren't like Twickenham. Yeah. <laughs> and so is that going to become even more acute? Right, and we are joined uh, in this second part by Nish Kumar. Who has a new TV show called The Mash Report, which is um, a political satire, and that starts next Thursday night at 10.30 on BBC Two, and it's written with the writers of The Daily Mash. So thanks for joining us, Nish. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So we thought we'd start with a nice light story um, from this political week, which <laughs> is the Tory MP Anne-Marie Morris uh, <laughs> dropping the N-bomb. Uh, what was your first reaction to that when you saw the news? Uh, genuine, genuine disbelief. Like, genuine disbelief. And a quick moment where I was like, hold on, is it still 2017? Yes, it's still 2017. Yes, <laughs> it's 2017. And a cabinet minister just said the N-word in a meeting. Sure, sure. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I, I honestly, it blew my mind. I'd never heard that expression before. Had anyone heard, have you heard that expression no. before? I'd actually never heard that no. expression before. And she said it was a slip of the tongue. Who has that on well, the tip I, of their tongue? What yeah. did she mean to say? I think, yeah, this thing is like, a slip of the tongue is when you're like chairing a panel and you accidentally call like a questioner or an MP or whatever, sweetie or something. Yeah. You know, it's like, or like you know, when you yeah. end a call to someone with love you and you're like, oh, I can never speak to you Yeah, again. it's when you call your teacher mum. Yeah. yeah. That's a slip of the tongue. <laughs> it's not deploying a phrase from the Civil War. <laughs> That is not a slip. That is a full-blown head injury-inducing fall into a ditch. <laughs> it's baffling. Yeah, we've all we've all had a slip of the tongue. I dare say I might have one at some point in this podcast, but I suspect <laughs> that slip will not lead me back to the 19th century. Yeah. I think what I... I mean, there were many things about it that went through my mind. I, I'm still unnerved by the fact that I, like everyone else, had to Google the phrase. Yeah. And it's when you're just like, oh, but that doesn't actually make any sense in context. No. Because if it's like the the thing you don't know about, right? I think the one thing that we we, we do know about is... No deal is a... Is a yeah, yeah like a problem. that. Yeah. That is kind of like the sort of the... That is the, I don't know, the yes. white person in the wood pile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like... Yeah. Yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, like yeah. the wood in the wood pile. That's the white person in Poundland. Yeah, yeah, that's my new expression <laughs> that I've come up with to counteract. Yeah. It's, uh, that's really... Um, it's concerning, before we get into the actual actual massive problem, yeah. mm. it's concerning that it's now dawning on these people that no deal would be a problem. Like, that is very worrying, that this is the first time they're like, Tell you what, I've been really blindsided by this, but us having no deal on Brexit could be really difficult. Like, it's that is really worrying just on a surface level. But then when you actually get into it and you kind of go, you know, what, where did, why did you think that that was an experience? And I can't, can some, maybe you, you guys, you're journalists, 
maybe you'll be able to explain this to me. What what is the what does it actually mean? Because I know what it literally. I've read the Wikipedia article, as I suspect hundreds of thousands <laughs> of people did. There's a real bump on Wikipedia for that article. There's a real surge in interest yeah. in what I imagined was otherwise a not very well visited article. Yeah. Also, who wrote that article? <laughs> It's quite. I mean, I was it's quite grateful to be honest for the yeah, level I was, of detail. Yeah, yeah. Um, in... I read it afterwards. And I was like, oh, great. And then part of me was like, why is that on Wikipedia? <laughs> right. um, yeah. So what it what it mean refers to originally is the process of. Uh, although actually, one of my American readers emailed to say that it's actually about black people being lazy. But according to this very detailed write-up yeah. through Wikipedia. It refers to when people would smuggle escaped slaves. So, yeah, so I got that much. I understood the actual, what it actually refers to, which is, yeah. like, smuggling escaped slaves yeah. and piles of firewood. But, so, is it? does it mean that there's a concealed problem? Or does it mean that there's just something that you're not expecting that's concealed? Um... I think that's kind of. I, I think it is that just open to interpretation. I think it's trying to hide away a big problem. Is that what is that what it is? That's what I couldn't. That's what I can't really work out. I can't. But also, I mean, it's amazing how many conversations I've subsequently had with people where people are so reluctant to, or people are so unwilling to say that something is racist. That's mm. what struck me so spectacularly yesterday. Is that. Um, you know, one of my friends who, like, I've known for years was like, it's not racist, it's ignorant. And you kind of go, no, it's absolutely racist. That is the dictionary definition of what racism is. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is the absolute dictionary definition. And he was saying, I've heard someone use that expression before, and I was like, and they are also racist. And he was sort of saying, um, you know, the thing about racist is that it's such a powerful word, we should really think carefully about using it. And you're like... I mean, I'll tell you what another powerful <laughs> word is yeah. that we should be very careful of yeah. using. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, because one is really on the tip of my tongue and in the manner of Anne-Marie Morris, in danger of slipping out. I think it does feel to me like, and obviously this is a good thing in many ways, but one of the sort of negatives of the advances in equal rights in the 60s and 70s is people now think when you say the word racist, like, oh, so you're saying I'm a bad person. Yeah, yeah. This person's not a bad person, yeah. therefore they can't be racist. And it's like, well, it doesn't quite work like that, actually. Yeah, because yeah. we're all trapped by various social constructs that we sort of evolve into. And, you know, as a man, you're constantly, you know, as a man of a certain political disposition, you constantly find yourself going, oh, yeah, I'm, that, I'm, I'm, I've been sexist there. Like, that was absolutely... Just, you know, we're all these like weird Manchurian candidates stuffed with kind of social pre prejudice yeah. that we've been ingrained in. And you just have to be conscious that when that is activated, you do something about it to stop yourself. Do you find that when you're writing your comedy, do you find that you have to be aware of that kind of pressure? Yeah, I think so. I think there's nothing wrong with thinking carefully about what you're saying about something, thinking carefully about why you're making a joke. You know, we've got we've got absolute freedom, especially as a stand-up comedian. You have absolutely no restrictions on what you can say. And so there is some responsibility in thinking, oh, if I'm making this joke, why am I making it? Do I understand why I'm making it? You know, if I if you are offending someone, do you can you rationalize that in your head? And very often you can and it's fine. 
And I would say nine times out of ten, you work out. And then the tenth time, you kind of go, I can't really rationalise this. And I'm sort of just saying it, you know, because words have a certain potency. And as a stand-up comedian, words that have shock value can sometimes be a kind of easy route to a laugh. But you sometimes just think, wow, it's, it's not really adding anything. Mm. It's just, you know... Um, but yeah, it's exactly the sort of consideration a stand-up comedian gives a comedy show that is pointless, that <laughs> a politician fails to do. <laughs> it's exhausting sometimes when you realise that comedians are sometimes seemingly held to higher account than politicians. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that, because the kind of golden ages of, of British satire or mm. TV have weirdly tended to coincide with quite powerful governments and yeah. yes minister and spitting image in the 80s yeah. thick of it in kind of that beginning that sort of still when new labor had a massive majority yeah, yeah. um i'm not saying obviously this i'm and yeah, i'm really looking forward to to the show but yeah. is it harder do you think to satirize a government that is weak and a bit sort of chaotic anyway i don't know i mean it's as weak and chaotic as they are they are, to give them their due, doing some damage. You know, and as much as they are all over the place, they, they are having a really, there are decisions being taken that will have a negative impact on people's lives for 10, 20 years. So, I don't know, I think there's never really a bad time to do jokes about the news. You know, when a government is strong, it feels good because it feels like a sort of, you know, especially in something like, especially the thick, I mean, the thick of it is an absolute miracle for a number of reasons, but especially because for the, all, all through the early years of Blair, everyone's like, how do you satirise this guy? He's, you know, so like media managed, he knows what he's doing. And then all it takes is for someone like Armando Iannucci to look at it and go, oh, the joke is the management. That's the joke. The joke is the stage management of these people. And that's where you, you find and sort of zero in on something. But at the moment, there's just, there's plenty going on. Maybe the hard times to do political comedy when people aren't engaged in politics. But right now, it's really, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. People are really interested and engaged in politics. So it probably is quite a good time for us to be doing political comedy just because the interest is there. Yeah, because you've been doing political satire and jokes about politics for a while. Have you found that that's changed over the time that you've been in comedy, the reaction to it from your audience? Yeah, it feels like... I certainly feel, remember going through periods of doing... I mean, I've been doing stand-up for about 10 years, 11 years, I think. I don't know. It's all blowing into one now. But in the time that I've been doing comedy, people's interest in politics has sort of waxed and waned. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been, like, points where... People just, you start talking about politics and everyone's like, oh, God. The audience is just a bit like, Gee, give it a rest. But we are not in one of those times. Everyone's very engaged by the news at the moment, largely because it's all terrible. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just a relentless cavalcade of bad news. But, you know, it, it is an interesting time to be talking about this stuff because people want to hear it. So thank you very much for coming in. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to watching the show. It is on 10.30, BBC Two, starting on... Next Thursday, the 20th. Thanks very much, Nish Kumar. Thanks very much, guys. I hope it's not shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And now it's time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Obviously, we've discussed the uh, leadership races in the other two parties, the non-leadership race in Labour, uh, where Jeremy Corbyn is secure, and I think probably the only viable candidates would either be a chosen successor, Angela Rayner or Emily Thornbury or Rebecca Long-Bailey, probably. Uh, but now we've sort of got a question about the kind of one which is both happening but not happening, the Conservative leadership race. Um, and I kind of, so there are sort of two questions we've got to think of. One is like, who is the Conservative you think the, the opposition parties should fear? I've asked, I, th- I think I've pretty much asked everyone who I've met in the party since the election result this question, who would you most fear? And there's two different answers. The first is someone like um, Boris Johnson, because they think that he would be popular. I mean, he has he has in the past been the most popular politician in the country, although I don't think m- more recent polls are showing that. And um, also, he's just someone who comes across as lovable and he's not really scrutinised by the press and that kind of thing. And then there's another school of thinking who, who fear the idea of having a sort of one of the more liberal I mean this wouldn't happen but one of the more liberal figures in the party like Heidi Allen or someone like that in charge who say well they would appeal to the centrists who we you know who we really need to appeal to if we're going to win any more seats next time and so we'd really fear if they took a completely different direction yeah it does feel like the kind of the the people who I mean the the result was great for Labour in lots of ways because Amber Rudd, who I think is the name people mm. come up with the most, has a small majority, so there's a sense that she exactly. can't run. Um, Greg Clark doesn't seem to have any following, and again, yeah, Greg Clark, he's yeah, he's, his dad was a milkman. He grew up in mm. Middlesbrough. He used to be in the SDP. You assume, in terms of some of the damage that they've done to their standing with the you know, affluent ethnic minorities and social liberals, he would help peel back some of that that vote. But they're not going to go for that. And yeah, the. The Boris thing, I kind of feel that people have just gone off him permanently. Yeah, I mean, I think it was always he was always going to suffer when he had to be in a position of sort of serious political power. So, so that, you know, a position where he's going to be scrutinised and also where he's going to be so associated with the establishment. I think people used to like sort of cheeky Boris, mayor of London, criticising the government, yeah. being nasty about David Cameron behind his back, but in a chummy way. Now he can't really do that, although he, you know, he has said off message things, but they're usually about grim things like the UK government's relationship with Saudi Arabia. Like it's no longer funny. Yeah. Um, so I think he, he might have gone down in the public's sort of affections. And, you know, because the uh, podcast this week is ultra parochial as we are both born and bred Londoners, but like I remember in 2008, <laughs> so much of the kind of chatter around him was what's the worst that could happen. Mm. But now the problem with the what's the worst that could happen answer is people like quite a lot of quite bad stuff actually is the worst that could happen and has happened. So I think he's more of a risk. Which does bring us to our second question, which I think is quite interesting, which is, can Theresa May turn it around? 
Well, I mean, he, she's tried to. This week, there was a so-called relaunch of her leadership where she invited the other parties, as we've spoken to earlier, spoken about earlier on the podcast, um, to sort of come to some kind of consensus with her and to give their ideas about what she should be doing rather than just criticise her. And that was seen as a pretty desperate speech. And Stephen, you've written extensively about how um, Conservative MPs were upset about this for a number of reasons, which might suggest that she doesn't really... She's running out of ideas. That one hasn't worked and she might not really be able to come back from that. Yeah, I think in terms of the campaign stuff, I think there are lots of people in Westminster and definitely I think some of the kind of... And I've been genuinely interesting queries from our listeners, but I, I think lots of people kind of seem to think that the bad campaign was something which happened to her, like, you know, like being caught in the rain. Mm. But it wasn't. It was the result of her bad political judgment, like the bad judgment of relaunching yourself at a review about insecure work. Like, yeah. don't need to, uh, <laughs> like, it's one thing you don't even, that's not even thinking one step ahead. That's just to be like, wait a second, what's the review about insecure work? What's my job? Oh, I my job is insecure. Like it, she even used that joke. Yeah. You know, in that first PMQ she did, which which everyone thought was amazing, she used that joke to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, she's like, oh, remind you, know, you of anyone? Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, why, why don't, why haven't you thought through? That this is not a good idea, and that kind of yeah, because we forget that behind the scenes, the Conservative campaign was run by yeah, it had the same senior staff, mm. the same junior as the successful 2015 campaign. Now, yeah, partly, you know, the economy was in a different state. They were facing um, a more formidable, it turns out, Labour Party. But mm. equally, they also didn't do lots of things that they should have done. And maybe that wouldn't have... I mean, I think the position, the local elections does show that the campaign did change the result, in my view. But yeah. it kind of does show that the part of her problem is just that she's a bit rubbish and her instincts are bad. And actually, she can't fix those. Yeah, and with just, you know, like a new set of special advisors and um, a relaunch, a fake relaunch, it's not really going to change that. The fact that she's just not a very savvy politician. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. Our podcast is produced by India Bork and mixed by James Shield. The music you're listening to is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Support the New Statesman podcast by subscribing to our magazine. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.